Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lombe, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Dr. Leslie Deacon. Um, We're really pleased to be back in the studio after a bit of a break um, to record this second series. And today we are here with Dr. Angie Wilcock, who was a guest on our previous series. Hi, Angie. Hiya. Nice, <laughs> nice to see you today. Sorry, we're um, a little bit hyper and excited. <laughs> yeah, it's snowing. It's nearly Christmas. Um, anyway, so we'll calm down, and that we're going to have at the time of recording. It was at snowing. the time of recording. Yes, yes, it won't be. Hopefully, when we release these. Never know. Um, yeah, we're really pleased to welcome Angie back. Um, as you know, this current series we're looking at domestic abuse and domestic violence. And Angie has very kindly agreed to come back and talk to us about some of the work that she's been doing. Um, So just to start off with and just to get us into it, could you introduce yourself, Angie? I know you did last time, but our guests may not have listened to the previous episode. Yeah, I'm Dr Angie Wilcock. I'm a senior lecturer here at the University of Sunderland. But also I've got a practitioner background um, working in the criminal justice system with offenders, but working in the third sector as well. And this is where I suppose my passion came from violence against women. Um, And this is how I try and do the research and link that into my teaching as well into that. So practice and professional experience overlaps here. Yeah, That's great. Thank you. Um, So just to start us off then, could you tell us a little bit more about the risk? Well, there are two projects I think we're going to talk to you about today. Yes. Um, So maybe a little bit more about the first one, the help seeking in response to domestic abuse. Yeah, well, the first one came, actually, there was, it was part of my thesis, my PhD thesis, um, that uh, from working in practice, I realised there was a lot of women experiencing domestic violence who didn't necessarily name it or relate to Mm. it. Um, And I was when I was talking about this idea with uh, was Professor Catherine Donovan at the time um, she said you know that's a great idea you need to get that sort of up and running and, and that's where that research came from I originally done a, a quantitative survey online just put it out online and, and I was City of Sunland Council and put on their web pages um, to try and employ women to come forward for the qualitative phase and actually 50 women came forward mm-hmm. um, had no idea of what their backgrounds were whether or not they had experienced domestic violence and from that, I carried out 20 in-depth qualitative interviews. Um, so it was for a range of women, what, women who said they'd never experienced domestic abuse, where I could see, if, which we'll go into probably, yeah. they the had. Um, right. Women who worked in frontline service provision um, and also women who had that experience of domestic abuse. Um, and that's where this piece of work came from, or the paper I've written yeah. now about the challenges to their ontology that came through the fieldwork. So when you when you sent because that's what I was interested in. So when you you know when you um, first were advertising, was yeah. it trying to just get just was it about perceptions yeah. of domestic abuse, domestic violence? What without it having to be about you have experienced it? So yeah, was it, it was about women's understandings right. of domestic violence and yeah. what their routes to help seeking would be. 
Um, because we know predominantly a lot of people don't come to the attention of the services that don't seek help so we knew there was a lot of informal networks that supported women so I just put the survey out asking what people thought and give them tick box you know to to pick from there and there was room for some qualitative feedback and I was shocked at how many people did not relate certain sexual financial and emotional Mm -hmm. um, forms of abuse to domestic violence or domestic abuse um and ultimately that's what I followed up and, and help seeking was practically would only have been and it's what they relate to now is that public story that would if it was physical they only felt a need mm. at that point mm. so I wanted to explore that more in depth to get the narrative around that yeah because that, that's what because obviously you last series you came on to talk about this from the perspective mm-hmm. of the emotions yeah. which I know we'll probably mm-hmm. get into yeah. as well <laughs> but this time we're sort of interested in um, the content of it because one of the ones we did have in the last series was was around this sort of coercive yeah. control and people's understanding of that and that not being understood and not being perceived so was that one of the things that you found? It did that's what came out and this is what one of the last chapters I wrote was, was both the, the, from the data was about that coercive and controlling behaviour and a lot of behaviour by women is altruistic so it's based around that they would put the needs of their family and children mm-hmm. before themselves. So what they were saying is in terms of seeing course of sex or manipulated sex was, well, yeah, I'm in a relationship. It's part of that. And I just need to do it. You'll go in a mood. You'll go in a huff. You won't talk mm-hmm. to us for a week. Or maybe you'll have an affair. So to keep that harmony of the family, they were for all some women actually said, well, you know, it's you just do it It's to keep the peace. It's sex to keep the peace. Yeah. And that's where that came from, that coercion. Mm-hmm. But, but when I, th- I flipped the coin and said, if that happened to you in the public, she says, oh, that would be sexual assault. You would, you would report that. But that private-public divide is still vast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It's huge, isn't it? Because that's, that's the thing for me is, is it's like we're sort of getting more knowledge about mm-hmm. what is coercive yeah. behaviour. Yeah. But being able to sort of, for people to understand that, in their own yeah. relationship so mm-hmm. they actually because mm-hmm. there's compromise mm-hmm. isn't there and mm-hmm. there's like yep. you put other people's mm-hmm. needs ahead of your own at times yep. but at which point that becomes harmful harmful yeah. is so difficult for them yeah yeah to work yeah. out themselves yes yeah. i think for some of the women they said right to turn over and cry she said but for, right. it was normalized and i've seen a lot through jest she says, well, the women at work would so you just pull your nightie down when you're finished, you know, this type of this type of wow, jest. Yeah. And she says, that normalised it for me because then I just presume, well, that's what everybody does. So it's normal part of a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's part of the rules of being in a relationship. And I think that jest normalised that. And again, with money, finances, um, one woman said, well, and do you know what was frightening? And I know, Sarah, you've done work around the ageing population. The older women, how control the older women were in their relationships but just saw it as well you get your housekeeping and you have to live out live off that and if you run out well then you've just got to manage or you do without i said so i asked the question did your husband have money pocket money she went oh yes he had the rest of his wages but you know they give us that it was grateful we had to manage on that mm-hmm. and if we didn't then that's our problem for not managing it properly um mm-hmm. but they didn't ask them for more money and, and for that and and yeah. one woman who will probably go on to talk about flagged it up in terms of she actually realised halfway through the interview that for all these years she'd been controlled and um, that was the difficulty of that. That must have been really difficult. That's the bit that I found so interesting because there's a lot of power issues mm-hmm. going yeah. on there, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. around mm-hmm. um, this, I think, could you, did you talk about is like there was the consciousness raising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but also about like, a, I think, was it reconfiguration of personal experience? Yeah. Like almost like they try, I can sort of almost visualise them. Yeah. Thinking that through as they're talking to you, what was that like? It's, I've, 
say a little bit about conscious raising in case anybody doesn't understand. Yeah. I think it was Stanley and Wise who first coined this phrase. And it was about women talking to women about their experiences, not necessarily in an academic framework, but out no. in public women's groups, institutions and women talking about issues that and everything that went on in the home, their personal or public life and realising that it sparked a conversation and we all experience things differently. So some people might use foul language every day in their lives and that be normal to them, but another woman might be harmed by that. So it's about raising that awareness for them to sort of reconfigure that how they live their lives and maybe there's something different in what they do, whether that's right or wrong. Um, so that just sparks that imagination where you start to think, wait a minute, I've been doing this this way. Is that right or is it wrong? Mm-hmm. Is it healthy mm-hmm. or is it unhealthy? And that's when the women started to question when they were talking about it. Um, and they started to ask me questions that I couldn't answer for them because mm-hmm. they had to come to their own conclusion. Yeah, that must have been a difficult line to walk for you as well. It was. Thankfully, professionally, and I know it doesn't come into research, I've got a counselling diploma. So mm-hmm. I can, and, and I, I suppose it, it's strange because your professional barriers for those who've worked in professional background that you have this sort of persona this barrier that comes up where you're dealing with the moment you're in Mm -hmm. the moment and you reflect Mm -hmm. on everything else afterwards and while I was in there and and I saw this reconfiguration sort of for the for the mature woman I've just mentioned she was actually Mm -hmm. in service provision as well frontline and she'd said you know I've been the major wage earner for years but you know she's I'm a spendthrift he keeps telling us I squander I'm a spendthrift so he controls the money she says yeah I get 30 pound every week but if I spend that, then I've got to go back and tell him what I've spent it on and kind of have some more. And she says, but just that's the way it is. And she says, I know I'm the major wage earner. He doesn't really, but I suppose I do waste it. And he looks after it and, and capture it. And we're talking about different things. And the sex to keep the peace came into that parts of that. And how years ago when our son was small, he'd gone to hit her when she had some. But that was just a one off. That doesn't, that's not domestic violence in my relationship at all. And it wasn't until we were talking about, she was actually talking about some of our service users. And then she just stopped and she went, she was sitting thinking, she went, I just need to reflect for a second. She went, because I'm just reflecting what I've just said to you about my relationship and what I'm saying. She said, I've been experiencing domestic violence for years, haven't I? Yeah. (laughs) And I I, I could see, I, I suppose as I was watching her, I could see her persona changing. I could see the pennies were starting to drop. So I think I must have prepared myself a little bit for that. And I just went, I'm sorry, but I can't tell you that. I don't know your personal relationship. Mm. Um, I can only go from the conversation we're having and I can't make that decision for you. Um, so I offered to stop the interview at that point. So we stopped and she took some time out. She, she walked back because I'd gone to our place of work where I was doing the interview. Um, and then she came back into it. Um, but at the end, you know, where you keep your journal afterwards, the notes, the conversation we had afterwards, um, for her... She was now saying to me, what do I do? What do I do? Do I go on and live this sham marriage or do I go home and change that? I know now what I've experienced. He's controlled that money and spent my money. But really, I've been living on £30. How do I go away and deal with that now? So what do I do with that now? And I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I can't. I can't tell you what you need to do with your life for you. And I mean, I've given the health seeking information. You're in service provision. Mm -hmm. She ultimately had to go away and deal with that. So she came in thinking she had a brilliant, we'd say, now I've got a brilliant relationship. Mm -hmm. Don't have any issues. But from my service user point of view to going out and saying, I don't have a great relationship. And I've now realised for the last 30 years, I've been in this controlling environment. That's quite, that's very powerful. I feel like quite... I'm going through in my little head, yeah. <laughs> thinking mm-hmm. how on earth would would I deal with that? Because it's like what you're expecting in some mm-hmm. situations, 
to come up but in th- in that way you were there as a researcher to try and just understand and it wasn't about that so there's like I mean I know you were saying you were yeah. prepared to some extent for that Angie but that's quite a lot to, yeah that's I mean the weight of that yeah. I just really felt yeah. oh, the weight yeah. of yeah. somebody asking me and the realization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those wow. kinds of moments <laughs> I'm I think must happen in practice a lot I mean I don't know if you ever experienced anything like that in your practice Leslie where conversations not ostensibly about the relationship and domestic abuse but the relationship might be being explored and those mm-hmm. moments might happen where people realize that I think it's more because I can I was in generic practice so mm-hmm. so I was expect I think as a practitioner I wouldn't know what I was going to go in for mm-hmm. like you, you go into situations and you don't know what you're yeah. going to expect to find for for me and I think um if you're expecting one thing and it's a complete curveball to something else I think as a practitioner I, I probably would expect that now I don't know what mm-hmm. other people would feel about that as a researcher though that's where for me I would feel like my my positioning of what do I do about yeah. that because mm-hmm. as a practitioner I, I would know yeah. where I would go but in that that started that's making me feel slightly uncomfortable yeah. 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 you know it's a very difficult think, yeah. position wow. to be in yeah. in terms of what sh- the responsibility yeah. of that. I mean, our, our role as researchers is very clear, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. We're not there as practitioners. No. We're not there to offer that no. support ourselves. But if you have triggered that kind of realisation yeah. through your mm-hmm. project, there's something about what obligation do we have? It, well, yeah, yeah, it's, very, it's difficult, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's I think, yeah, and I stayed with some women for up to two hours after the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, it's coming from that feminist perspective as an insider or yeah. wanting to be an insider and, and, and obviously into subjectivity come into play, why I was there, what I was doing, my interest and why I had that interest. And I think um, it becomes to that where we've got what Denskam and I've talked about, that comes the fake friendship mm-hmm. that we, mm-hmm. want to, we, want, we want to do this study because we want to hear women's narratives so we can get that story out there to raise awareness. Um, but we also have to realise these are women's lives that we're also sort yes. of gaining on and they do start to reflect mm-hmm. and they do they are going to have triggers of moments and I think we can't be blind to that when we go into research I think for me having some knowledge from professional background helped but I also had to take some time out mm-hmm. after yeah. about five or six interviews I had to stop because I was getting to a point where uh, and, and for, for women they were saying some of them who had really had experience and hadn't told their story and they were telling me some quite heinous sort of moments um, it was like it was cathartic so I've give this to you now then I, mm-hmm. you know you go and deal with it and I was at home and it's like and my what am I doing and for me emotionally when we've talked about the emotion in research um, it was for me thinking wow and yes I expected this you talk about that you do your ethics you put on the phone what risk there may be but we don't really fully understand that emotional Mm -hmm. harm or risk that's going Mm -hmm. to come and we have to make sure that our respondents are not (coughs) harmed more I suppose when they leave that interview because of sharing that yeah for for that woman when you Mm -hmm. when you're talking Mm -hmm. about that Mm -hmm. I just feel like you must have heard that the yeah. way that she was sharing yeah. things with you yeah. as she went through that there's this dawning realization yeah. of mm-hmm. hang on a minute I've never seen it like yeah. that before yeah. and now seeing it mm-hmm. and then you've got kind of like a responsibility towards her so yeah. even though like just as a person yeah and, and as a researcher you're sort of saying well okay I'm not here to resolve that that you see I, I, I know. find that really hard I think because the pr- practitioner in me 
just wants yeah. to go no I can't yeah. I can't just yeah, leave yeah. 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 you know and mm-hmm. I think that's some of the mm-hmm. challenges in practice yeah. is you get ex- you, you, you are in their lives mm-hmm. and therefore when you sh- those things are shared with you mm-hmm. the ability to walk yeah. away is very difficult yeah. and, and to just leave mm-hmm. it you can't and I think for me it was a bit I think it's Blakely that says you started to f- to feel the research rather than just, just yes. being part of it yes. um, and, it, and it was about and I think um, it, one another author I can't remember the name off the top of my head now but it was about staying a bit longer to give a bit of yourself mm-hmm. and that's what I felt I had mm-hmm. to do and thankfully I'd done a lot of reading around that sensitive and I had sort of thought I was well sort of trained or versed to deal with that but mm-hmm. you do deal with it in the field but for researchers, I think for, for me, listening to the transcriptions, because because of what they'd said, I wanted to transcribe everything myself and I did. But then you're listening to that transcription. And even now when I teach it coming up 10 years on, I still hear each woman's voice in my head as right. I say her piece. Um, and some of them I still can't read out fully. Yeah. Mm hmm. So I think it's that emotional depth that, yes, we want to have this into subjective reality. We want to immerse ourselves. And I'm aware there's always a power imbalance. I don't, you know, say that there's never because, of course, we do. But we we build this fake friendship to get this rich narrative that we want to help people to raise awareness. But then we can't just walk away afterwards. In some way, we need to deal with that aftermath. Yeah, I agree. I think there's lots of approaches in research mm-hmm. that help yeah. us to manage some of that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, I was really interested about what you were saying. It's been brought up a couple of times now, both in relation to harm within the research mm-hmm. process, but also harm in terms of how people um, how people think of that for themselves. Because you were yeah. talking before, obviously, we're talking about a lack of recognising that yeah. some of these experiences of domestic yeah. abuse and harm and yeah. risk are very subjective, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering if you can say a bit more about that in in terms of um, kind of understandings of domestic abuse. Yeah, well, for for some women, as I said, everybody's we all experience things differently. And what was a level of harm for some women wasn't for others. Um, So some of those who had experienced domestic abuse found the coercive control and behaviour was fine. It was normalised and became part of routine. Mm -hmm. It was when it got more physical and very much more violent Mm -hmm. that they saw that as as a risk and they levelled that. Mm For some of the women who said they had an experience being told how to dress, what to wear, um, the people who were acknowledging their experiences was all the physical aspect of it. They didn't relate to anything. But for those that what they argue is a lower level, I would say every form of domestic abuse is, is quite harsh. <laughs> yeah. But um, they've been told what to wear, being told how to dress became a routine. And for them, it was only... Some of them said sometimes it was recognised as harmful when they said things like, but I didn't want to wear that that day, but I had to. Mm-hmm. And I was really uncomfortable because I wanted to go out in the black dress, say, to say, and he said I had to wear the red dress. Or I wanted to buy the gold top and he went and bought the silver top and wouldn't allow me to buy the gold top. Um, and I think that's when their sort of realities were changing. They, they, they sort of came to be the person he wanted them to be. Yeah. And it wasn't the person they'd gone into the relationship as. Their families used to make points about them changing or, or how they did the hairs was it was a big one. This low level um, that became part of that routine but it enabled that escalation later to the... And it wasn't until it got much more physical that it was actually labelled or they recognised it yeah. to be. Mm-hmm. If that's I'm not sure if that's what you're touching at. But, yeah, that's how they sort of came to see it. And I think, for me, there was elements where 
maybe it's because I study it and I understand it much more in depth. Little things that we're saying about what to make for the tea on a Monday, a Tuesday, everything was set. The older women and you didn't change the day because he'd go berserk when he come in or it'll go in the bin. That there was no respect for you'd stood and cooked that tea. They didn't mm-hmm. see well. He was the one who goes to work. He's the one. He's the he's the breadwinner, mm-hmm. which is still dominant. Um, and you're thankful for what he gives you. Um, and when I said, but do you, do you find yourself in an equal relationship? And they did. They yeah. thought they because yeah, I go to me women's groups or I can go to the bingo or I can do as long as I'm back in for his tea at four and mm-hmm. or I, and I've got everything on the table. And unfortunately for me, it was the younger members who found that fine because for them it was a protector. And I think there was some research done by Girl Guiding who found that young girls have a, a problem with de-embarking between the protective father and the protective partner. Um, where it's only because he doesn't want anybody to look at you or shout at you so he makes you wear the longer dress. It's only because he cares about you that he doesn't want you going out with your friends or he'll take you there and pick you up. And the younger ones, for me, some of them said they've got apps on the phones now where apparently they can know every app. And the boyfriends, it's only because they really care about us and they need to know where I am and then they Mm -hmm. say, what are you doing in there? That's control to me. But they didn't see it at harm at that point. Yeah. But... It's very difficult because for me, I'm thinking this is this is you know stalking. It's harassment. It's control. Yeah. And but for them, this is just part of the routine, and it's that protective. Well, my dad wouldn't let us go out, and that so he doesn't because he just cares about us. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting what you're saying, and that's what I was sort of touching on talking Mm -hmm. about the subjectivity of harm because these women aren't aren't mm-hmm. seeing it you were saying mm-hmm. that they would recognize yeah. physical yeah. violence mm-hmm. you know that perhaps mm-hmm. results in some kind mm-hmm. of bodily mark or something yeah. of, of harm mm-hmm. but these other things not recognizing it as no. being damaging or harmful in any way it's very difficult just mm-hmm. thinking in terms of practitioners and how they notice yeah. these things as well you know i remember yeah. doing safeguarding training this is mm-hmm. years ago and being trained about what kinds of marks yeah. to notice and mm-hmm. things like that but coercive control there it's, aren't it's physical huge. signs yeah, like that so how do practitioners kind of make those yeah. um, this is a big question no, to no, ask. I know. no no <laughs> what and, kinds of things yeah. can they rely on to kind of make that subjective i think of... it's really difficult because mm. all our lives we are, our lived realities so it might be similar while we're sitting in this room but when we go home our lives are so different yeah and we all fall into a routine i suppose yeah and I think our in our interpersonal bias influences that as well because what we see is harm or what we don't yeah. see is harm. Yeah. And coercion, I, I even see, I've obviously being released, you probably do it yourself, you're out, you people watch, you see things happening. Yeah. Yeah. Even down to supermarkets, one poor yeah. woman asking if she could buy a tin of peas. And, and, you see, and I, I'm terrible for, for doing that. And what I might see is harm. They're happily in that relationship. Yeah. Who am I to go along and tell them that well, what they're doing is wrong? Yeah, yeah, it's so absolutely. difficult. Do you know, it's it? so difficult. And I think for practitioners, especially mm-hmm. from a social work perspective, trying to understand what's healthy and unhealthy for that for one person or different families. Like I've said, I know for, coming from the housing and the task force, some families, foul language or what swear was a natural phenomenon for them every mm-hmm. day. And that's mm-hmm. how they conversed yeah. with each other. But for me to go into that family and say that's wrong, that's how they conversed no, with their can't. children. And it's yeah. when does that become harmful to that? Uh, yeah. You know, other yeah. family could be totally different. Yeah. Someone swears at them or shouts, and that's them really nervous and harmed. And yeah, it's so context specific, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's so it difficult is. to generalise, isn't yeah. it? Because thinking what you were saying about with the apps and stuff. Yeah. On the other side of that is protection. Yeah. There is protective mm-hmm. elements of 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 having someone know 
where you are where you are uh-huh. and um i use that for my my son and he yeah. knows i do it yeah and he he yeah. it's because in case he gets lost yeah so he, he knows that i mm-hmm. can check up on mm-hmm. him if, if he's lost yeah, yeah. right you know and it's a reassurance for yeah. me but i can i get that you've then got a practitioner going into those situations and the thing is they're on alert for yeah the, the problems the, yeah, aren't the triggers. They? but knowing whether that's problematic for that family mm-hmm. and for that person because then you don't know that actually maybe that person mm-hmm. who's identifying it is actually more harmful yeah. to the other partner mm-hmm. than yeah. they are. To, you know, it's, yeah, so, yeah. it's so difficult. Yeah. I think picking it up as well, because from the frontline pr- practitioners who was in that study, for me, a lot of them, what we are saw as harmful was routine, like the one where the man managed the money. So for me, I mm. said, so if you were in someone's house and someone said that to you, would you just find just how they live their life? So it's like personal, what you see in your family life is normal and probably not harmful. Mm-hmm. Will you miss those triggers in a, in an abusive relationship? Yeah. Because yeah. traditional ideology and beliefs and cultural and gendered norms that we accept and not challenge because he is the main breadwinner, he covers the bills, gives them the yeah. housekeeping, mm-hmm. the kids have got shoes on their feet, you know. Um, he does as he pleases. Um, and, yeah, he tells us what the way I wear this, but that's become part of that routine. And if that's what happens in their life, how would yeah. they see it any differently? Yeah, they, it's they really wouldn't. difficult. Yeah. It's our perception of risk, isn't yeah. it, it's, really, that mm-hmm, we're talking about mm-hmm. what we might see as mm-hmm. being risky yeah. and... That, and I suppose those things are really difficult mm-hmm. to to identify mm-hmm. when we're talking mm-hmm. about coercive yeah. control mm-hmm. or emotional mm-hmm. or psychological yeah, yeah. abuse because you can't see the impact. Yeah. No, very, no, you no. Know. no, no. And um, I think it's very difficult. It is. I mean, with I was thinking about the practitioners I'm working with at the minute on like advanced safeguarding modules and stuff. And one of the key the key mm-hmm. thing that I've done with them is reflexivity. Yeah. Because for for me, it's about actually you've really got to understand where is that coming from Mm -hmm. that perception that you have that that that's okay and that's not okay what where's that coming from in terms of Mm -hmm. yourself Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that's the bit for me they're the two in in this Mm -hmm. i suppose if it's all right to kind of connect that to to mothers Mm because obviously my my background is in in child protection and and i'm sitting here listening to what you're saying angie completely engrossed in it and then thinking as a practitioner i wouldn't just not having the space yeah in any way to really be thinking about that impact mm-hmm. on that that person because mm-hmm. what I'm seeing in that practice situation predominantly is the mother yeah. and whether or not the mother is protecting because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. tra- that yeah. is where yeah, yeah, it automatically definitely. goes yeah. and there's lots of reasons why mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that happens but I just because were, were some of the mothers in that I know that yeah yeah some of them were mothers not like one woman who and she was from a very good professional background um and she said look I, I, all i wanted was to go to the shop and not have the card refused because he'd gambled all the money um and just wanted to buy the kids it was the kids at the front of this who needed their teas their dinners their school and i just didn't want to turn up in a shop and she was left with thousands of pounds worth of debt because wow. he was getting it on her on the back of her um and for her, it was about the children. He doesn't realise what he's doing with the children. And they never came to the attention of services. No. And we know a lot of families don't um, until he ultimately was sent to prison eventually. But um, I think for that type of thing, for her, the children was fur and forth and firmest. And she thought she was protecting the children all mm-hmm. the time. And she says, yes, every family has their ups and downs, is what they all say. We all have our rows in front of kids. Who doesn't? So for me, that for them, it was no different. It was when I went to the bank and there was no money left to buy their shoes, to buy their school mm-hmm. uniforms, to buy their food, shopping, yeah. that I didn't have it. Um, and a few others as well, where they thought they were protecting the child, but yeah. obviously they just didn't see that 
well, no, the, the children it's are witnessing and it's difficult, it's hard. You can't see it as, as something happening to yourself. Yeah, to yeah. Then, even, then see it happening mm-hmm. and the impact on your children. That's so, yeah. it is yeah. so difficult. Because yeah, yeah. I remember when I, when I started practising that, you know, and I do, I'm starting to feel old now. <laughs> I feel like, because I remember it, at the time mm-hmm. getting an acknowledgement of the emotional yeah. impact on children yeah. was was a challenge at mm-hmm. that point. It yeah. was like, well, unless the children were getting physically harmed, yeah. then they, then it wasn't having mm-hmm. an impact. And it was like, actually, no, it it is having an yeah. impact on the children. Mm-hmm. The children are, mm-hmm. are aware of a lot more than mm-hmm. you think they're aware of. But it's so difficult, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. that was emerging then. And I feel like what we've got emerging now is this idea of this coercive control, yeah. which has obviously always been there. Mm-hmm. But then we find a way to name it. But then that doesn't help necessarily see it. No, 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 <laughs> it doesn't. How do we see it in practice? No. And what do we do yeah. about it? But yeah. a lot of people don't recognise the physical element. They just see it as having a row if it happens every now and yeah. again or when he's drunk. It's excused. Yeah. It, 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 and it's minimised because of the behaviour. And I think for coercive, it's so difficult that it has become part of that routine over the years that how do you now tell someone that their relationship after 40 years, they've got this an issue when it's caused an issue yeah. for the children. And the, um, and yeah. I suppose the children see it for them, accept it um, and just see a part of their dad being angry or because he's the head of the house, they do what they're told in terms of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's really difficult. It's that normalisation yeah. for people yeah. as well yeah. when that's what, mm-hmm. what you see mm-hmm. and what you're subjected mm-hmm. to. You don't realise, no. like you said, that there's other other no. ways of being and, and yeah. other ways to look at that mm-hmm. situation. And if family and friends are in that same predicament, and I know in terms of myself and friends and all this, I've picked pick them up a few times, that they've actually said, I told you not to come out with that on to their partners, you're a mess. So I've instantly gone, right. what have you just said? And she said, look, at the, and I said, if he said that to you, shouldn't he wouldn't dare? And I said, so why have you said it to him? Because you're trying to him what he's yeah. wearing. Well, he just hasn't got a clue, has he? So I need mm-hmm. to dress. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but if he was dressing you, well, he wouldn't get the chance. So why are you? And yeah, do you know, people just that? don't see that opposite no. side of it. Yeah. And yeah. he goes, oh, it's not worth the argument. I just put on what she says. And I'm like, oh my god, that's yeah. control. Because I was wondering yeah. how much, like, because was it was it women that answered, or did you get? No, this wasn't. This is just friends. And I'm no, talking no, about, I'm just, yeah, sorry, it was yeah. mostly women. I, this my research, research. I did get some men coming through, but I had to filter those out because my study was about was women. It about? So it and was I, specifically about yeah, women. And I do yeah. want to go back and do some work on men because I think there's also. Um, there's a big gap, big there's a huge gap and I think talking there, to Nicola it? about what their perceptions are of yeah. coercive and control yeah. and behaviour we need to understand that because if they don't und- if nobody understands what it actually is how can we ever do anything about it yeah and That's people it. don't because it's no. such a thin thin mm-hmm. line like you yeah. said where people might just perceive it as someone mm-hmm. being protective yeah. and caring yeah. when does it cross over yeah. into being something yeah. more sinister mm-hmm. or, or damaging and we know but well coercive and controlling behaviour underpins I would argue all forms of domestic abuse mm-hmm. it starts at the uh, very early on in the onset of relationships and this is what the young members were saying oh it's because he loves us he tells us he loves us because he cares he'll pick us up and drop us off he wants us to wear this because I look good in it I'm, I'm his, on his mm. arm I'm his babe on his arm he's young, and it's frightening yeah. and that can once that's embedded it leads to that escalation mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're caught mm-hmm yeah, so because I'm so interested in things around like early intervention, yeah. and I find that mm-hmm. really interesting. That I do feel like you know um, it is important that we we know about these things to mm-hmm. try and do something yeah. to sort of prevent it getting mm-hmm. yeah. you know further down the line because we don't want that. No. And, and it's about sort of the awareness raising yeah. around that because I, I feel like I'm I'm quite curious to know how much 
practitioners, hopefully practitioners mm-hmm. who might be listening to this, yeah. really know about mm-hmm. about the coercive yeah. control element. I'm now thinking my mm-hmm. little research brain's mm-hmm. going, Sarah, and I'm thinking, is that the kind of thing that yeah. maybe we could do a survey on yeah. alongside yeah. this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just think be... it'd be interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do they understand? Yeah. And what do they think? You know, their their sort of responsibilities mm-hmm. as practitioners mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Around, around this, that. because yeah. it's so, yeah, definitely. It was just I just feel like that's a whole area that I mean I've gone back and done mm-hmm. my I've done my 30 days retraining yeah. practice which I've loved doing and everything is like there's in the one hand still the same mm-hmm. and then on the other hand completely different yeah. in terms of yeah. the issues that they're, and mm-hmm. so much more complicated yeah to try and understand what on mm-hmm. earth is going on mm-hmm. sorry my little brain's like it'll be interesting to see what um, practitioners' perceptions yeah. are of coercive and it's, control and behaviour. I think that would be It definitely. would be really interesting. Yes. Maybe the three of us could do something yeah. together. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Be really interesting. Yeah, um, Angie, I know that you've also done some work um, around women's experiences as migratory yes. wives. And could you please tell us a little I bit will. about that? This is the, the, the work I'm busy doing at the moment. And to be honest, this has been in my head for about nine years. <laughs> and I've spoke about it constantly. And mainly because a number of years ago, when I was based over a priestman building, I came into contact with a Thai woman who was very emotionally upset in the street to talk to her. She was lost. She was confused. And um, to, to cut a long story short, she had come over. She'd married a guy who was working offshore. He'd give her £10 for the fortnight he was away. No means of transport of getting around. She just spoke little English and she was just totally lost. So I got her home. Um, when it came to light, she didn't speak a lot of English. I got it into... So I, I started to realise he was quite controlling and I got it into the women's centre when he was away. On my way to work, I used to pick her up, take her there for the day, pick her up and take her back. So she learned to speak English and empower herself, basically. So she started to understand what he was doing when he, she was locked in the bedroom and he was on the computer. I won't go into that because you can imagine what... So mm, that comes okay. from there. But what happened was, in terms of migratory marriages... Thailand, we know, has a a reputation for the sex industry. And I think this led to the influx after the Vietnamese War, the Western men travelling to Thailand, basically uh, sex tourism. And this led to the marriage of Thai women to to Western or Korean men and women coming now to live in the UK or around Europe, Germany, America, you know, Westernised societies. And agencies started just to set up, and these are their, it's, it's a women as a commodity basically in terms of, of dealing with this. And this lady that I come across lived in a rural village. She was the prettiest one of the family, and she was told to marry this Thai man because he was sending money home, and it got her two children who she had to leave behind into education, and it paid for the family. This doesn't happen to all, you know, women do, you know, linked to agencies, mm-hmm. and a lot of them out of Bangkok see there's a way out of Mm -hmm. poverty they see it as a way out of that sex tourism industry but we've also got very intelligent professional women who come into the country through those agencies but the stigma sticks Mm -hmm. and I realise that we've got a dispersed community of Thai women it's not uh, South Asian women have this community where they're all together and they've got support Thai women don't they're isolated and they're dispersed around the UK in, in pockets um, but they're very resilient at the same time because what I noticed this woman had done was she managed to get a, a Facebook and she walked around town, she spotted another Thai woman. So they started to speak to each other and they've built a little community where net, on Facebook, this network, just as a support network. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd done a lot of searching and hardly, you know, it's a, it's a huge gap yeah. where no work's been done around this area. Until very recently, there's a, a young woman just finished a PhD, in, but it's based in London. 
Um, I thought, right, this is the opportunity. I am going to do it. And so, yeah, I've started the field work. And initially, while I wasn't really looking for domestic violence because it was their transitional experiences of how they integrated into society after migratory marriage, it, it, it's 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 honestly it's heinous. It's what's coming through is quite shocking in terms of mm, really yeah uh huh yeah it's it's so that's where it's took me. Mm-hmm. Um, barriers the key one I had 10 women lined up for interviews so far I've only managed to get four done I've got another two lined up mm-hmm. the barriers is the men the gatekeepers don't think it's a good idea for them to participate right and that's but I've uh, and mm-hmm. I was saying to, to Leslie just before this interview that I've just speaking to an agency yesterday who said they've got quite a number of Thai women from around the area making contact because of their isolation they can't get to them and stranded um and and for me it's a form of 21st century slavery that's mm-hmm. legalized mm-hmm. do you think the reason um because they're so spread out that's meant that that the issues are not coming to anyone's attention no. because you've got you mm-hmm. have they're so disparate across yeah, the yeah. uk but now hopefully you're going to start to pull that together to try yeah. and understand mm-hmm. what is actually yeah. happening there because there is no control, uh, well, not control, that's a terrible word, well, no, no, no yeah. understanding of, of, of their experiences and coming yeah. to the UK as it, was it migratory? Migratory marriage, it's, there's very little known and, yeah. and I started the, the research just in the northeast of England but I've gone back to ethics and had it extended to the whole of England right. now because um, there's women linking in from other areas who's picking up my, because I've advertised on some of the Thai um, Facebook pages mm-hmm. and wanting to, so I've had that changed to try and broaden the sample really um, and one of the key things and I think it's a finding I've said to these women so when you ask the process of going through the agency that this agency links you do you ever visit the UK and they've said oh I came once for a holiday did he come out no never um, but I so did you visit the area you know integration no nobody really speaks but isolation is terrible um, and I said what about the local authority or the government do they follow up They've been in the country 10 years and they've never been followed up by anyone. Um, no one's ever checked to see if they're linked with doctors or, you know, mm-hmm. um, no no checks anything of whatsoever. And she's, But one key thing this woman said to me, and I think it's a huge finding in itself, she said, can I ask why when we come to the UK, if the government know that they are sex offenders, why aren't we told? Mm. And I went, right, she said, because I've been here 10 years and it wasn't until someone they were talking to said something in jest she then went away and googled it and found out he's been done for child sex offences and so I explained Claire's law the domestic violence disclosure mm-hmm. scheme to her she had no knowledge of that and I thought you know these if the government's allowing these women to come in through my the men migrate yeah. because they've got a certain income as well and they've got to have a certain positioning then surely if they have a record surely they have a duty to say to these women mm-hmm he had do you realize he's got this record because she suffered horrific sexual abuse from him she's now trying to flee um and i just think why wasn't she told this because you've immediately isolated that woman and put her at risk put her in a really diff- risky awful mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. and this is not is this like um, these... post-immigration laws and pr- i mean i don't know them but i would assume there's some kind of process or is it just once you're there once you've got your status mm-hmm. whatever that might be that's it that's it that seems to be it because right. I, I, i'm going to look into the local authority but mm-hmm. because surely there's some duty of care i don't mm-hmm. know and this local authority obviously once they're married um and they've got their they've become f- citizens 
we know that, that there's no support for women fleeing domestic abuse, you know, mm-hmm. before citizenship or very little. I mean, my mm-hmm. um, South Old Black Sisters is brilliant and it's my sister's place. And But for women um, and for them, they were threatened with deportation. Mm. Um, and I said to one, would that not be a good thing? And she said, no, because that's shame to the family. My brother won't, the family won't have the money he sends home every month. I mm-hmm. have to, mm-hmm. I have to sacrifice um, this to get my children through education, something I didn't have. So they're facing all kinds of additional barriers yeah. for yeah. leaving. Mm-hmm. On, you mm-hmm. know, it's difficult for any yeah. woman in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. what you said before kind of resonated with some of the conversations we had on the last series of the yeah. podcast around, or maybe it was conversations Leslie and I had outside <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> I can't remember it? now, but just yeah. about the complexity of the yeah. systems that we have here, right? And if you're born yeah. and raised here mm-hmm. and you those systems yeah. are still impossible to yeah. navigate if you yeah. come here as an adult and you're not familiar mm-hmm. and you maybe don't yeah. speak the language or mm-hmm. you're learning to speak mm-hmm. the language yeah that's an impossible no, no. maze that you just don't yeah. have access to at all so that's that's an you know incredibly hard for someone to know even that services might oh, exist definitely. that they could go to let mm-hmm. alone how to find them and mm-hmm. and get access to them it's that language barrier isn't it and mm-hmm. there was another yeah. lady who were well, one of the lady who said she was actually she'd done a masters and very well educated woman she said um she she said that oh he's a great husband i don't have any problems but they'd move three times and i said why she's oh because when i get friendly with people he moves us on because he mm-hmm. doesn't think we need any more in our anything in a more in our relationship by me and him so i said but is that not isolating she's yes because i need more than that so he's bought me a dog she says, but I want to go. And she said, I'm from a middle class family, in, in sort of, which is quite rare, she said, in, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And she says, when I married him, they're all, there's about a decade age gap between all of most of them. Like, that's the minimum decade age gap. And she said, I want to do a degree, but my father's had to pay for it. I said, so why has your father had to pay for your, for your degree if your husband wants you to, to, to be educated? He wants you to integrate. She went, he just said there was no need for me to go. I have got enough degrees. So my father's paid for it and now I can go and do that. And I'm thinking, oh, this is this he's controlling. Yeah, he might not yeah, be physically abusive, yeah. but he's controlling our life. And every time she makes a friend, he moves her away. Yeah. And now he's just once at the set up a business online teaching Thai women English so that she's isolated and she's just in the house for him because he said, you shouldn't need any more than me. I should be enough for you. And if you love me, I would be enough. So she said, I'm being very selfish to my husband. I'm not respecting him. And But she was crying. She was, yeah. she was crying, saying, I'm very isolated. Um... I haven't been back to Thailand with COVID for four years. Now he's saying I don't need to go back. Um, but she said, I need to see my parents. My father's not well. Um, my father's paying for my degree. And she said, it's just like, but I understand he should be enough. And I'm thinking, oh, this is control, he's, you know. Mm-hmm. And obviously for her, she just sees it as being disrespectful to him because of the culture yeah. she's from as well. Yeah, I was going to ask mm-hmm. you about the cultural differences. We've yeah. got a lot of, um, you know, as we've already recognised yeah. in this conversation, mm-hmm. it's very difficult um, to understand kind of those domains around mm-hmm. coercive control and things yeah. like that. Did you kind of note any cultural differences in understanding and responding to domestic abuse? In terms of the tie, yeah, mm-hmm. very respectful to the to the husbands. There was mm-hmm. no mention of equality. They, they knew their role was in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew their role was to do the house, to clean the house. This is why 
it was very traditional um, in terms yeah. of what they saw there was, and they should be grateful for that. Is that part of like what was being sought in the relationship? I mean, was that, or have you not looked into that? I haven't really looked into no. that, to be honest, but it's a good question because it might be something I can carry forward <laughs> as I go because I've got more to do, you know, so um, mm. to see what their ideal thoughts were of what their relationship would be when yeah. they came here. But some of them were looking for jobs, um, and they said the barriers because... One lady got a job in a call. The, the, intelli- the, the lady I've just been talking about, she got a job in a in a call centre um, and she said he let her try it to see how she went, but she left because the men in the call centre were saying, we love Thai women. Um, mm. Thai women are very sexy. Can you match us up with your friends? Are you from the sex tourism? She said, no, no, I'm not. And she said, they just didn't believe me. She said, the innuendos was in the, mm. the language, so she left after three weeks. Mm. Um, and the other two women said... The job centre just said, nothing for you, love in here was the words one of them had oh, come out gosh. with for a Thai woman right. to come out with that as something she obviously heard. Um, and she said, whenever you go, they just ask if you're from the sex, are you a prostitute? She said, so that's that stigma mm. of the sex too is, is following yeah. them around. And I think that isolation where people won't talk to them in the street, their neighbours just sort of look at them and don't want them to integrate. I think that's that stigma that's come from Thailand. Mm. This research sounds like you're um, kind of, I mean, you said it's under research, underexplored, it's not really known about. You're finding some really Mm -hmm. important and really troubling Mm -hmm. things with this project. Mm -hmm. I know it's early days because you're still data collecting Mm -hmm. and things, but what do you think are the kind of key responses that are needed? I think we need some, well, definitely need some follow-up from government if if they're going to carry with this mm. migratory marriage and they're allowing women to come in who are unknown to, to, to the men they're marrying through an agency there needs to be some monitoring of these agencies yeah. America's already putting this in place because of the number of deaths of Thai women um, who married one domestic homicides one guy six women he'd married there was no checks on him when they found obviously it's 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 now serial killing because they, yeah. they've been buried around his property um, oh and I think for, for us in the UK, we need to be learning these lessons. And mm-hmm. Germany's done a lot of work around it. Finland, Norway, it's just so there are policy responses in other in other countries, countries that Europe that I'm picking up on. From, yeah. But there's, I think we need to monitor that. How have you met this person? And if they're coming in from an agency, then surely we have some duty of care mm-hmm. to check that they are registered with GPs, that they are with mm-hmm. dentists, that they are getting seeking medical help, and that there's some type of monitoring. Um, because it's they're so dispersed. It's not just women, is mm-hmm. it? It's not just going No, to it's be... got to be different. It's got yeah. to be other Chinese, maybe it's other yeah. nationalities. It's got to be bigger than just that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. particular yeah. group, hasn't mm-hmm. it? And it just, it does feel like, um, you kind of, I, I just get surprised mm-hmm. at time, like, well, yeah, yeah. why yeah, is yeah. this a shot? Yeah. Why, why have we yeah. not got mm-hmm. something in place? Mm-hmm. You kind of mm-hmm. just no. think, it can't all just be... Do you think there's assumptions there around, oh, well, therefore it's a choice? It's a choice, yeah. It's a choice and therefore there is no responsibility. And I think traditionally um, people think, well, she's put herself in that position. Mm -hmm. She married him. She should have, you know, she's married him for the money type of thing, which is wrong in most occasions because most women are forced into that. It's not a free, you Mm -hmm. know, unless they are fleeing the sex tourist industry. and a lot of them I've spoken to now have masseurs around the city because they've found they've had to set themselves up in business because it's the only job that people will accept them for. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. Which is, it's, it's astounding. And I'm not sure if practitioners have, and I know this is a third sector agency that I was talking to who's supporting women, 
but they're probably the women who don't come to the attention of the types of social services because of the men's income. I think they've got to earn over a certain amount. They're going to be professional people who are marrying these women to have the thousands to pay these agencies yeah, yeah. Um, to bring them in in terms of there these... There tends to be um, a socioeconomic impact on, mm-hmm. on those that become aware mm-hmm. of, like the mm-hmm. child protection yeah. side, that yeah. actually a lot of yeah. the sort of more middle income yeah. and educated yeah. people are not mm-hmm. then seen in the same mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues around yeah. that yeah mm-hmm. um so they won't be on the radar mm-hmm. i mean it's you know i mean i'm sort of thinking about the practitioners and i'm thinking you know they've got piles on their radar anyway yeah. mm-hmm. they have, there's not Nothing enough resources yeah. Yeah. you know yeah and there's not enough time and, mm-hmm. and support to do what they do anyway but that doesn't yeah. excuse you know um as a, as a society that we're mm-hmm. ignoring you know mm-hmm. issues that are mm-hmm. there yeah yeah and i think the other thing is the men speaking for them yeah. um because when one woman who oh horrendous i don't know how she's still alive to be honest but um she was going to the doctors but he wouldn't allow her to speak he had to do all the talk and so she couldn't um and when she was going for help and she's now had to have um a total hysterectomy because of injuries and stuff mm-hmm. Um, and she's suffering, and it's it's this thing. How far? Surely the hospitals have got a duty to step in. They must under. They must how think there's the, something how wrong. How is it not being? I know. I really don't know. I really don't know. And this is um, because those those questions should be getting asked. Yeah, right? she's, she's now she's with a refuge. Yeah, contacted yeah. services, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. if she's coming in with yeah. injuries. Mm-hmm. And that's this is what I'm questioning: is mm-hmm. is it this tie bride scenario, or yeah, the, is there like a perception, uh, perception there, yeah. or is it this? Um, because these international marriage bureaus are all set up now, I don't know mm. what how they're viewing this in terms of that. But obviously, there's something happening that means they're not seeing yeah. it. But if it was another, like mm-hmm. if it was mm-hmm. a, a local mm-hmm. couple, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that maybe they would yeah. look at it differently. Yeah. Is there something yeah. that's not sort of mm-hmm. triggering? Yeah, yeah, the questions. Yeah, the women think it's because they're viewed as a prostitute. Right. Okay. That's just the women's views. So their their they views, their help. experiences are just yeah, and how it's spoken to, looked at in the street, and she's even fam- one of the the woman who was educated. Her family, one another member of his family, married a Thai woman through a marriage bureau, and she was from the sex. So they mm. just assume. And when she says no, I wasn't, um, and I'm educated, um, they said no, no. You just, you know, you're obviously not. You're obviously from that, but you've got this persona of yourself. And she said, "No, no." She says, "So they don't believe me." So she says, "It's wow. pointless, really." She says, "Because it's the stigma that sticks." And I think that's that's really awful because a lot of our yeah. university have Thai communities. You know, there's people Absolutely. here studying who may yeah. marry and stay here, mm-hmm. and and a lot of it they, they still bring up the Little Britain sketch of the Thai bride and mm-hmm. and how that stuck right. with people traditionally. Mm. Um, and I think. It, as I say, this is early days, yeah. and I didn't go looking for domestic violence. No. But that this is what's jumping out for, and for everyone I've done, there's not one who hasn't got some experience of wow. it. Wow, there's a lot of work to be done around it's that. Huge. Yeah. It's like you've yeah. just opened it all up. I mean, it's important yeah. what you're doing that you yeah. do open mm-hmm. that up, mm-hmm. and and I suppose that's then why these are quite helpful yeah. as well to yeah. do, do a podcast yeah. on yeah. it in mm-hmm. order to sort mm-hmm. of share mm-hmm. with yeah, you yeah. know, hopefully our two mm-hmm. listeners that we think we've got yeah. <laughs> maybe three this year yeah. maybe three yeah. <laughs> yeah we've gone up but yeah that that actually we just want people to sort of hear it's not we're not necessarily coming up with solutions no, no. but we're coming up with sort of awareness awareness raising, raising of this yeah. and i think yeah. these kind of things to me that's that's part of what we're doing as well <laughs> yeah. because 
that's new from a research perspective it'd be really interesting to to hear from people if if they're they, seeing you know, this yeah. in practice mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. are they seeing an increase yeah. mm-hmm. in this area or is it just something that they're not yeah. seeing at all because it's they're not getting yeah through to or them. they're not looking at it yeah yeah, yeah. or they don't just mm-hmm. it's not yeah. on their radar yeah yeah but it'd be interesting when i do get eventually done and written up to come back and see what comes Absolutely. out of it yeah. and yeah. talk about it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and i've got a new point of research for yourself as well yeah yeah brilliant yeah um I'm conscious of the yes. the time and how long we've been talking yes, for, but I do have another question, yeah. perhaps the finishing one, unless Leslie's got more. I'm looking at my mm-hmm. little notes. Um, you, but you just given that. these two projects and mm-hmm. thinking about your learning across both of them, what do you think um, the key messages for practice are? Oof, um, very difficult, actually. I think we've touched on some of it when we talk about the coercive harms with how we perceive it and mm-hmm. bias, but I think... Um, I think we need to do more with local authorities and governments as well to try and raise the issue of it and they need more resources I think we can't I think everywhere at the moment given the position we're at in terms of a country and austerity that we know a lot of the third sector agencies on the ground do brilliant work and they're the women who probably reach out to initially Um, and I think we need a greater focus on that we need Mm -hmm. more funding for that but we need to raise awareness much more and I think I mean, you said, Leslie, that the caseloads are huge that yeah. physically can't take on any more. But we we have to if yeah. we want to help these people. Mm-hmm. And the more we raise an awareness, the more issues we're becoming aware of is mm-hmm. how do we actually deal and manage with all of these caseloads. Yeah. Um, and I feel for practitioners today, to be honest, given everything they've got to face. But yeah. yes, coercive control is vital and it's key because it underpins a lot of violence. But it's, it's a prevention, isn't it? How do we get in? to prevent that in the first place and I think it yeah. comes back to awareness raising and yeah, um, absolutely. that's yeah. definitely a, a starting yeah. point isn't it yeah. because if, yeah. if if people are not aware of the mm-hmm. issue then no yeah. resources are yeah. going to be channeled towards no. it anyway yeah. but I think so lo- it's, got sorry, to be the, yeah. it's got to be the start of it hasn't it yeah and I think local authorities could do a lot more by who we've got living in our area yeah. who have we got who's just moved into our area the government this woman's gone to live at this address we'll link in with services even if they, they employed a couple of people just to do well be checks you know we've got these people to new to the area either with the doctors and and we've got these um doctors are employing life coaches or these the new what's the model that's gone out of my head social prescribing prescribing. yeah the social prescribing link in with these women just to make sure they have got access to what they need they're not being isolated in the home i think there's there's some way to go in terms of that Mm -hmm. thank you is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today? That no, haven't... thank you. I think I've enjoyed that. It's helped to talk about the Thai stuff because I've got a lot of things going in my head now that yeah. I think I need to go in right down as well. Yeah, yeah. Sense. So it's, yeah. yeah. Thank you. No. Um, thank you so much, Angie, no, for thank coming you. and talking thank to you. us again yeah. about your research. It's so um, important what you're doing and look forward to hearing more about it as it develops as well. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Much. Thank, thank you. you. You have been listening to The Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr. Sarah Lombe. And Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye.